The man Trump calls Old Crow is flying the coop. The lead starts right now. But this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. Mitch McConnell there with his own 2024 plan, stepping down as Senate Republican leader, though he's going to stay on as a senator from Kentucky. The new era of Republican politics now loading as a new high-stakes race team kicks into gear to replace McConnell. Odds are the winner will likely be an old white guy named John. Plus, a monster wildfire in Texas exploding at one point, burning through 150 football fields a minute, charring through land 11 size, 11 times the size of Washington, D.C. We're going to go live on the ground as this fire in wide open land prompts evacuations in its path. And President Biden's date with the doctor, the report due any moment after his annual physical. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with our politics lead in the end of an era on Capitol Hill. Senator Mitch McConnell, the longest serving congressional party leader in American history, announced today he's stepping down from his leadership role effective November. The 82-year-old says he will continue to serve as a U.S. senator representing the Commonwealth of Kentucky, but he says he's ready to pass the baton to a younger generation, by which I mean a bunch of guys in their 60s and 70s. Father time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back, hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. Now, there is a good chance that that new generation of leadership means one of these three Johns. Senate Republican Whip John Thune of South Dakota, Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, the conference chair, or Senator John Cornyn of Texas. Cornyn, so far, has been the only one to signal that he's going to jump into that race. But any man or woman who steps into McConnell's shoes will have to lead a party that is in the end stages of morphing fully into the party of Donald J. Trump. McConnell today acknowledging that his views on national security and funding American allies are at odds with many in his party, including the former president. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. But McConnell also acknowledged that he, at 82, year old, 82 years old, realizes that, quote, the end of my contributions are closer than I prefer, unquote. McConnell has visibly struggled on occasion in recent months, appearing to freeze and forget what he was saying for extended periods of time, including in a news conference last July. This week has been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of... Uh, Anything else you want to say? I'm sure let's go back to your office. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say anything else to the press? Let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu, how big of a surprise was the announcement today? 
Well, the timing was a surprise, Jake. I think there had been an expectation that sometime this year that Mitch McConnell would announce that he would not run again for leader. He had not been saying whether he would run and continue this term. Remember, he's already gotten what he sought out for, which is to become the longest-serving party leader in the history of the United States Senate. He's already achieved that goal. As you mentioned, 82 years old. He has had health issues. He's on the other side of Donald Trump. He has seen a growing faction within his party, a small faction, but a vocal come out and criticize them, something that he has not seen before, being so vocal in their opposition to him. So he recognizes that this moment is the end of his tenure, time to step aside. But the timing still surprised everyone, given it so early here in this congressional calendar. But, Jake, this will set the stage for the leadership race to succeed him. So Manu McConnell is going to serve uh, until September. The race to replace him has already begun. Uh, what are you hearing about timing? Who will enter the running? And who might have the edge? Yeah, it's unclear who has the edge because these are secret ballot elections that will occur after November. So we got the next eight months or so for private and public jockeying to take place between the three candidates who we expect to be the leading contenders. John Thune, John Thune the number two Republican who has expressed to me in the past that he is interested in the position. John Barrasso, the number three Republican who is also expected to jump into this race. John Cornyn also reiterating today that he is interested in running for this position. Now, I caught up with one of Thune's supporters, Senator Mike Rounds, who's a fellow South Dakota Republican. He indicated to me that this race essentially has already begun. And I asked him about Thune's handling of Donald Trump, given the fact that they've had a bit of a rocky relationship until Thune endorsed him just over the weekend. He's had a bit of a rocky relationship with Trump. Is that a liability? Well, I think, you know, uh, just in the last week or so, he has publicly announced his support for the Trump campaign. And, uh, and I think that's something that a Republican leader in the Senate um, really has to ponder and, and be careful of how they approach it. I think he showed uh, the right type of temperament in the way that he approached it. And the fact that he has said he will support uh, the, the former president in his campaign was the right thing for him to do. Have you started to talk to Thune about what this campaign will look like and what you will do to help him? Oh, that started a long time ago. <laughs> So I talked to a lot of other Republican senators, Jake, and many of them simply say that they don't have a preference yet or are not willing to express it. And they want to hear these candidates say how they will drive the future direction of the Senate GOP. So just a lot of uncertainty about the aftermath of McConnell here. And, and Mono, there is some breaking news uh, when it comes down to the shutdown showdown, the government shutdown scheduled as of now for close of business Friday. We've just learned that the House of Representatives is going to vote tomorrow on a short-term government funding bill. Uh, is that expected to pass? Yeah, and this will be the fourth time they've essentially kicked the can down the road just for some time. This is expected to be a short-term spending bill. Part of the federal government extended for one week. There's a deadline of March 8th right now. That would extend, or March 1st right now, this Friday. That would be expended, extended for another week. There's another deadline currently for the following Friday. That would be extended for yet another week. The idea is to get all the annual appropriations bills done, get them out of Congress by the time uh, to fund the federal government until the end of the current fiscal year, which is the end of September. But remember, Jake, they were supposed to do this back in October, but it's been such a tumultuous road getting just the basic essence of governing done, keeping the lights on for the federal government. It led initially to the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, his handling of this in the House, and then all the rest back and forth within the House and Senate GOP. But expect Speaker Johnson to take some incoming fire from conservative hardliners unhappy with the deal he just cut with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer.
All right, okay. Manu Raja, busy day on Capitol Hill today. Thanks so much for checking in. Let's discuss with my panel. Uh, Amanda Carpenter, uh, Congressman Matt Gates is out there celebrating uh, this news about McConnell. He posted on Twitter, now known as X, we've now 86th McCarthy, McDaniel, McConnell. Better days are ahead for the Republican Party. He's, of course, talking about uh, former Speaker McCarthy, former RNC chair Ronna McDaniel, and then uh, McConnell. Um, are a lot of people in the party celebrating the news, you think? Well, I think certainly the Trump wing of it is. But listen, Mitch McConnell is leaving the party in a much worse place than he found it originally. In the Do you blame him for that? I think there is a special category for Mitch McConnell because perhaps me, more, him, more than anyone in the Republican Party after January 6th was in a position to put Trump behind the party in leading the Senate to convict him. Mitch McConnell tried to walk this line where he said that Trump is morally and practically responsible for January 6th, but he wasn't going to do anything to hold him politically accountable. And so I look at Mitch McConnell retiring without actually having sacrificed anything personally, politically, for profit, however way you want to swing it. And he's just another guy leaving the field without ever standing up to Trump and leaving the party in America worse off. So, Gloria... If McConnell were here, which he's not, uh, he would maybe want to say, uh, Amanda, that's not fair. I do. Uh, um, right. I'm not going to do my McConnell. But, uh, Amanda, that's fair. Um, I did stand up for uh, against Donald Trump. I, a number of times, yes, I voted to acquit him for the January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol. But I then said this. Former President Trump's actions preceded the riot for a disgraceful, disgraceful dereliction of duty. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. Since then, of course, uh, Trump has insulted McConnell repeatedly, he calls him old crow. He's insulted his wife, uh, Elaine Chao, who used to be uh, a secretary, cabinet secretary, his administration, using language that a lot of people she find designed it racist. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's your take on why McConnell is resigning? Do you think it has to do with Trump, or do you think it's just he's he's just old? I th I think I think both actually. Look, I think he sees the caucus moving away from him to a degree. They did try to defeat him once, and it didn't work. But. Um, I think he sees Donald Trump as the nominee of the Republican Party, potentially the next president of the United States. He's 82 years old. He doesn't want to deal with that anymore. By the way, in that speech, McConnell also said that this would be handled by the courts. Mm. What, what Trump did, and of course now we see that it is being handled by the courts. Not really so, being supported right, by Republican but I think senators. He, I so think the, he would also say that he cost the Democrats you know, two Supreme Court nominees, which I'm sure Kate is not forgotten. I certainly agree with that. Right. You know, <laughs> and and he and he would say, and I'm standing up for American exceptionalism mm -hmm. in Ukraine. And I'm and I'm never going to stop doing that. Um, of the three replacements, I don't know if we have that graphic. Let's put them up there again. Uh, Thune, Cornyn, Barrasso. Thune, Barrasso, Cornyn. Um, <laughs> from where I sit, uh, Barrasso is the more mega candidate. He has been unwilling, as far as I can tell, to cross Trump, uh, whereas Thune and Cornyn have shown flashes of 
independence from the MAGA wing. Uh, do you agree or do you not see there's much difference? I'm not sure I see a ton of difference. I mean, we'll see. I think, you know, eight months is a long time for people to campaign publicly and privately for this job. I think, um, you know, we've seen across the board a reticence on the part of leadership of the Republican Party to break with Donald Trump. I have a really hard time imagining that any of these guys, as they're as they're campaigning, jockeying for this job, are going to make standing up to Donald Trump a centerpiece uh, of their case. I just I don't see that happening. So, you know, as much as I uh, have my own issues with Mitch McConnell, certainly I think he has politicized the uh, judicial nomination process more than probably anybody else in the history of the country, which is I think has been damaging. Um, you know, he, he was somebody who at times uh, was willing to work across the aisle. He obviously voted for Biden's infrastructure bill. Um, and, and those two worked together and, when Biden and, was vice president. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as Gloria was saying, I mean, he supports uh, American leadership on the world stage and, and continuing to arm Ukraine in the face of Russia. So, uh, you know, uh, I, my heart is not personally broken uh, to see Mitch McConnell go as a Democrat. But I also am very worried about the trajectory of the Republican Party here because it's hard to imagine somebody more reasonable than Mitch McConnell okay. taking that slot. So that's putting you down for four tickets to New Zealand. <laughs> all right. Thanks to all of you. Breaking news. A New York appeals court judge just weighed in on that civil fraud case ordering Donald Trump to pay $354 million. Trump tried to get a hold in that order. Let's get right to CNN's Kara Scannell. Kara, walk us through this latest decision. Yeah, uh, Jake. So an uh, appeals court judge in New York said that Donald Trump must post the entirety of this bond, $454 million, including the interest on the judgment, in order to uh, to satisfy the judgment to stop the New York Attorney General's office from trying to move forward to execute that. Now, this is a ruling from one judge, so it is temporary in nature, and there will be further briefings on this. But what the judge said is that Trump will have to come up with this money. Uh, he has about until essentially the end of March to do this. And and, but what the judge also said is that Trump is this one of the bans that was Trump is facing was that he couldn't take out any loans from any New York uh, financial institution or any financial institution that was overseen by New York regulators, which is essentially a large swath of the global banking system. So the judge is here saying that Trump can apply for loans because that was one of the arguments Trump's team has made. They said that to satisfy this judgment, to come up with that much money in cash, they might need to get a loan or to sell property. But they said they were prohibited under this judge's order from accessing the banking system, from going going and, say, taking out a loan against Mar-a-Lago or one of the golf properties. So the appeals court judge is now saying they can go ahead and access the capital markets. They can try to get loans in order to satisfy the judgment, because what, one of the arguments Trump teams made also is that even to get a bond of this amount of money, the people that underwrite these bonds want cash, and that is why they need access to the market. So uh, Trump is going to have to come up with this money, but now he's able, he's given more ways to try to do that short of selling his property. Of course, big question is, will he be able to get someone to underwrite this bond? Will he be able to get access to the markets? Will someone write him a loan? That all remains to be seen. But the clock here is ticking. Uh, briefs in, in this case when they will take this to the full appeals court panel are due by the end of the month. Uh, and that is also around the same time that this judgment is due, which is also right when Trump is going to be sitting for jury selection in the criminal hush money case uh, on March 25th. Jake. All right, Karis Cannell with the breaking news. Thanks so much to another major political wake-up call that uncommitted vote tally in the Michigan primary. President Biden, were you watching? Why that tally in this single state is so significant and should be a warning to any politician in this big election year. Stay with us. 
And we are back with our 2024 lead. Cue the election music, please. I'm stumbling a little. I was up late last night because of the primary. The White House attempting to focus on the positives after last night in Michigan. President Biden won the Democratic primary handily, where 13% or one in eight Democratic voters, instead of voting for him, checked the uncommitted box. Now, percentage-wise, that's not an extraordinary event in Michigan. In 2012, 11% of Michigan Democrats voted uncommitted when President Obama was on the ticket. But viewed as a total number, this is a cause for alarm. Generally, 20,000 Democrats can be relied upon to vote uncommitted every Michigan presidential primary. This was five times that, more than 100,000 Democrats. And that's enough to swing that battleground state. Additionally, most voters in the predominantly Arab-American Michigan city of Dearborn voted uncommitted. Most of them, most of them voted uncommitted, nearly 57%. That is a direct rebuke of Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war. Journalist Mehdi Hassan joins us now. He just launched his own digital media company, Zeteo, which means to seek in Greek, which, of course, Mehdi is Greek. We all know. His book is titled Win Every Argument. Show me, guys. Don't show Mehdi. Show me. Oh, there, Win Every Argument. It's on, it's on paperback now. Check it out. Great book. Mehdi, uh, I want to talk about Zeteo in a second. But first, yes. I got to know your take on the significance of this uncommitted vote last night. I completely agree with your intro. It is the case that Michigan does have big, uncommitted, you know, proportions. Obama went on to win it very easily against Romney in 2012. The difference in 2012 was it was not an organized effort. It was right. people just expressing discontent or whatever you do. Here is a very explicit aim to get a ceasefire in Gaza. That is what a lot of the voters in Michigan want. Uh, I've been speaking to people in Dearborn, across the state, and it's not just Muslim Americans or Arab Americans. No, progressives, progressives, young people. People of color, young voters. This is what Debbie Dingler, a congresswoman, they made the point that this is not just Arab Americans. 100,000 people plus is a lot of people. In a state that Biden won by, what, 150,000? Hillary lost by 11,000? They're neck and neck in the polls. If you're not alarmed by what's happening in Michigan, you're a Democratic strategist, you should be. Yeah, because obviously 100,000 people, that was a muscle flex we're here. Yes. Listen to us because do you, what, are, what needs to happen, do you think, practically speaking, not peace in the Middle yes. East, but practically speaking, what needs to happen for most of those voters to come back in the Democratic fold? A ceasefire? What, what else? So a lot of those voters, well, I can't say a number, but a significant chunk are probably lost. They're gone. I think they're lost. Not to Trump. They'll go third They'll party. They'll go third party or stay. Oh, look, if you are somebody in Dearborn who's lost not 10, not 20, 30 members of your family in Gaza, you're going to show up to vote? Are you going to vote for Biden even if there's a ceasefire tomorrow? You can't expect that. But there is a significant chunk of people who do want this to be seen as an as a act of pressure. They don't want to vote for Trump. They're not pro-Trump. They just want to see the best version of Joe Biden and of America. They want a ceasefire. They want an end to the killings. Not peace in the Middle East or a two-state solution right. or utopia but a stop to the killings, over 100 people a day, American weaponry, American money. They want to see that ceasefire. You're seeing Joe Biden promising a ceasefire is coming. I'm skeptical. Right. But I think the White House realized that they have to do something here. So uh, you make the point that they're not going to go to Trump, who called for a ban on Muslims entering the country. Let's say that this, I don't know what you would call it, this gambit of the Biden administration to force Netanyahu to sign a document <laughs> saying... I will only use American armaments in compliance with international law, which, which Netanyahu seems reluctant to sign. Yeah. What if that forces some sort of change in leadership in Israel? Might that be seen as 
more concrete even yes. than, than a ceasefire. I actually think the aid position is somewhere that Biden can have a lot of effort. You know, conditioning aid is very popular on the Democratic base, even members of Congress. I think it's mad that five months into the war, the Americans say, can you sign something saying you'll follow international law? Shouldn't that have been done on October the 8th? Uh, it's crazy that we're asking that now. And by the way, I also think it's crazy that Joe Biden is willing to wreck his presidency potentially and American democracy if Trump gets back in for Benjamin Netanyahu, a man who has basically... I can't find the daytime language for it, done bad things to every Democratic president in my lifetime. Bill Clinton struggled with Netanyahu, Barack Obama struggled with Netanyahu, and now Biden could sacrifice his own presidency. For who? For Bibi? Thanks for keeping it clean. I appreciate it. Before tried you hard. go, I want to ask you... Netanyahu, I tried hard. <laughs> you've moved on from your role in MSNBC. You told the Washington Post, you're, quote, a bit of a, a square peg in a round hole there. What, what gaps in the current media environment do you hope to fill with your new company, uh, Zateo? I said I was a round, a round square... Round peg in a square hole across cable news. I think. Across cable news. But I'm news. glad to be here with Not you, Jake, here. after four years. We've always had you here. We've There's always been a chair I've, for you. I'm here. happy. But I do think cable news, print press, all do good jobs. But I think there's gaps. And the reason I'm starting this company is because I want to be able to speak in a blunter fashion than perhaps some in the media speak right now, especially about issues like racism, fascism, genocide. I just want to be able to speak more plainly and provide a platform for other journalists to do so. So what will Zateo be? So Zateo is a digital media company. It means to seek to seek the truth in an age of disinformation and gaslighting. Zateonews.com, forgive me the plug. Uh, it's a platform for podcasts, streaming shows, op-eds. It's an all-singing, all-dancing media company. And it's a subscription model in a time when you know, Jake, our industry is suffering hard and people are losing a lot of jobs. All right. Well, best of luck with it. Good to see you. There will always be a warm seat for you here at this Thank table. You, We've sir. missed you. Good to see you, Maddie. Just into CNN, the actual text messages behind that damning testimony yesterday in Fulton County and the romantic relationship that is interfering in the election subversion case against Donald Trump in Georgia. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. This just into our law and justice lead. CNN has exclusively obtained the text messages behind yesterday's damning testimony in that hearing by the Trump folks to disqualify Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis from Georgia's election case trial against Donald Trump. Let's go straight to CNN's Nick Valencia in Atlanta. Nick, what are we learning? 
Well, during his testimony, Terrence Bradley repeatedly said that he could not or did not recall details about the personal relationship between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. But these text messages are in stark contrast to the tone uh, in his testimony. A reveal months of communication. We reviewed all 413 messages between Bradley and Ashley Merchant. Not only does it show that they've been communicating or that they were communicating for months, but it also shows that Bradley is appearing to assist Merchant as she was scrambling to find evidence for her bombshell allegation in her effort to disqualify Fonnie Willis. Bradley was uh, supposed to be the star witness for defense attorneys, but he was really not so easy to get information out of. But during these text messages, he was very chatty with Ashley Merchant. And in one of these text messages, Merchant says, do you think, talking about the relationship, do you think it started before she hired him? He responds, absolutely. Now, we should say that Bradley, during his testimony, said that he was only speculating when he responded, absolutely. Other text messages, though, reveal a very uh, cordial relationship between Merchant and Bradley. In fact, he refers to Ashley Merchant at one point as a friend. Uh, I'll read part of that text message here now, uh, saying, It is my hope that they do the right thing before then. You are my friend, Bradley says, and I trust you. They will not. They're arrogant as F. She thinks she won the other day when she didn't have to be deposed. So these text messages just really reveal a much different picture, a much different uh, tone from what we saw from Bradley during his testimony. And as we understand it, Jake, they're currently being reviewed by Judge Scott McAfee as whether he's going to introduce this into evidence. Tuesday's hearing didn't end with the damage te damaging testimony the defense attorneys thought they would get. But now these text messages are being considered as evidence in the case. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, thanks so much. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig joins us now to break this all down. Ellie, I, I want to play a little bit of the questioning to Bradley. Just to remind everybody, Bradley was the law partner and divorce attorney for the man, the prosecutor that Fonnie Willis is, is, uh, had a relationship with. The question about, is about when that relationship began, because if it began before she hired him, uh, then they would be lying. They would have lied under oath. So here's part of the questioning on the witness stand to Bradley yesterday. Take a listen. At the time you were communicating with Ms. Merchant, you were still friends with Mr. Wade, correct? Yes. And at the time you were communicating with Ms. Merchant, you knew that she was talking to you in her role and capacity as an attorney in this case, correct? Correct. So... Tell me what you think these text messages do and how they impact the testimony Bradley gave yesterday. So two things, Jake. First of all, I think these text messages establish that Mr. Bradley's testimony was simply not credible, simply not believable by any rational standard. And the other thing I think it shows is that Mr. Bradley has had a stark turnaround in his position for reasons we don't know very recently. Now, these texts, as Nick just laid out, they're recent. They're from January. They're from last month. And in the text, Mr. Bradley is telling the lawyers for the defendant, the people who are challenging the DA, absolutely this relationship started before Mr. Wade was hired, and he's giving them specific details. Here's when it started. Here's the specific legal conference where they met, where they started. And then yesterday, Mr. Bradley gets on the stand, and all we hear is, I don't recall, not at all plausible when he's giving them details a month ago, and that's speculation. I'm sorry, it's not speculation when you're giving specific details. So I think it badly undermines Mr. Bradley's testimony yesterday. And the timing of the relationship. She says, the Trump attorney says to Mr. Bradley, do you think the relationship began before she hired him? That's, a, I'm paraphrasing. And he says, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Why does that matter? Why does it matter when 
the relationship between Fonnie Willis and Mr. Wade began. Right. So we need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture here. When the defendants challenged Fonnie Willis, their story was essentially Fonnie Willis was in a romantic relationship with Nathan Wade. And then while that relationship was ongoing, she appointed him to lead the Trump case, even though he had never prosecuted a felony criminal trial in his life. Thereafter, Mr. Wade made a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Fulton County taxpayers, some of which made its way back to the DA, Fonnie Willis. The DA, Fonnie Willis, and Nathan Wade, though, offered a counter-narrative where they said, no, 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 he got hired first, then the relationship started, none of this was sort of intentional, none of this was planned. And then the stakes got upped further, Jake, because both DA Willis and Mr. Wade have now testified under oath that their romantic relationship did not start until after Mr. Wade was hired. So if that is untrue, they're going to have big problems for this case. They've submitted false testimony and they could have bigger problems than just this case alone. Yeah, so the issue here is there's kind of like a silly suggestion that the only reason Fonnie Willis is even engaged in this prosecution uh, is so that she and her lover, uh, Mr. Wade, you know, could live high in the hog and they take a, you know, take this government salary and go on vacations and this and that, which it does not on its face seem all that credible. But obviously the relationship was incredibly reckless. And now there are questions about whether or not she has been honest under oath about that relationship. What are the judge's options here? What can he do with all this information? Yeah, so this is a really important question. This will be up to the judge, Judge Scott McAfee, who we've seen in action. He is going to have to decide, first of all, who's telling the truth here? Now it's the defendant's burden. It's the people who are challenging the DA to establish the truth of what they're saying. But I could see the judge going either way with this. On the one hand, I could see the judge saying, I find the DA's story that this relationship only started after Mr. Wade was hired to be non-believable, non-credible. The text messages certainly undermine that. There have been cell phone records that undermine that. Or I can see the judge saying, look, there's a lot of question about this. It's not clear, but we don't have a clear smoking gun piece of evidence that their relationship started beforehand. Does, what's the impact on this, on this argument that the only will, reason Fonnie Willis and Mr. Wade are in this relationship is to like go on vacations on the taxpayer dime? Yeah, it's almost taken on a life of its own, Jake, because I agree with you. The financial conflict of interest argument is sort of obscure and a little bit of a reach. But if it turns out that in defending against that, the DA and Nathan Wade have given false testimony under oath, we're going to have a much bigger problem. There. Indeed. All right. Ellie Honig, thank you so much. A good reminder out there for you Thanks, kids. Jake. Always tell the truth. My next guest wrote what she calls a burn book. It's a tell-all on some of the biggest names in the tech industry, all about her journalistic enterprises in Silicon Valley. We're going to go on a deep dive with Kara Swisher next. Breaking news in our health lead, President Biden's physician has just released his report on the president's annual physical. The routine exam comes it's something of a critical time as the 81-year-old president faces concerns among even Democratic voters about his age and fitness. Let's bring in CNN's MJ Lee at the White House. MJ, let's start with you. We also got Sanjay coming. Uh, what is Biden's physician saying about the president's health? Yeah, Jake, um, here is that letter that we have been waiting for from Dr. Kevin O'Connor. This is the president's physician. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you what the headline is. And it was something we expected, given what the president said earlier today, that everything had gone well. 
Uh, Dr. O'Connor saying that the president feels well and that this year's physical identified no new concerns. Uh, he also goes on to say that he continues to be fit for duty and fully executes all of his responsibilities without any exemptions or accommodations. Uh, I'll let uh, Sanjay get into some of the uh, medical details here, but I think it just uh, bears stating, you know, we obviously care a great deal about the president's physical health uh, because he holds the highest office in the land and because uh, he is 81 uh, years old. Uh, he will be 86 by the time uh, that he gets to the end of a second term, if he has a second term. And you know that there have been some discussions and questions raised about whether it would be fitting for the president to take a cognitive test. And we just learned from the White House uh, that the president decided not to do that or rather, his doctors decided that that wasn't necessary. This is what Corinne Jean-Pierre told reporters just a few minutes ago on why they made that decision. Take a listen. The president's doctor has said, if you look at what this president, the president who is also the commander in chief, he passes a cognitive test every day, every day, as he moves from one topic to another topic, try, understanding the granular level of these topics. Now, of course, uh, the president's age, his health, they have been a huge part of the ongoing national political discussion. Uh, we've heard critics and supporters alike, uh, you know, expressing questions about the president's age and his mental fitness, his physical fitness. Uh, and we've seen the president increasingly sort of trying to test out different ways of swatting away those concerns. We heard him uh, sort of trying to use humor earlier today. We've seen that increasingly uh, coming from the president. Uh, we've also heard him trying to go after his Republican opponent on this issue. Uh, as a reminder, Donald Trump is 77 years old, Jake. Dr. Ju uh, Gupta uh, joins me now on the phone. Sanjay, what stands out to you in this doctor's report on, on President Biden? Yeah, I think that was a pretty good summary. I mean, you have, a, you have the main doctor, you have 20 specialists who were called in over a few hours. They did lots of different tests, it sounds like. Uh, a significant amount of focus uh, it appeared from reading the notes on his spine um, because of, I guess, the changes that he's had in his gait and his walking over the last couple of years. Uh, they identified arthritis in his spine. He has some degree of arthritis in his feet. They got orthopedic surgeons, podiatrists, neurologists, radiologists all involved. They uh, got x-rays where, where he actually moved his spine back and forth to see if there was a problem uh, there as well. Um, but pretty much if you look at last year, um, and look at the report from 2023, it tracks pretty close to this year in terms of the medications that he's taking, uh, the significant lab values and, and things like his blood pressure and heart rate. I think the, the, the biggest thing in, in the interval between last year and this year is that he uh, has sleep apnea and is now on a CPAP machine. Um, people may be familiar with this, but that's continuous positive pressure that someone sleeps with at night to help keep their airways open something that people sometimes develop. But there, you know, as you were just talking about, we, that's kind of what we know. It's a six-page summary, Jake, um, a little bit more detailed than last year, not as detailed as notes that I've seen in years past. I've been doing this a long time. But um, that was sort of the, the, the gist of it. As I think you were just talking about, no mention of a cognitive exam and an explicit sort of note that uh, if, if it was needed, the neurologist who did see President Biden would have recommended that exam be done, uh, but that was not the case today, Jake. All right, so Dr. Sanjay Gupta and MJ Lee, thanks to both of you. We'll be right back with Kara Swisher. Stay with us. In our tech lead, 
For years, our friend Kara Swisher has been covering the rise of Silicon Valley and asking tough questions of tech giants such as Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Bill Gates. You might remember this moment of internet history when she had Mark Zuckerberg on the hot seat. The grilling got so intense, he had to take off his hoodie. Yeah. Now Kara Swisher is revealing her relationships with and friendships and, uh, I don't know, interviews with some of tech's most powerful players holding nothing back. Her new memoir is called Burn Book, a tech love story. Kara, thanks so much. Uh, that's the wrong book. Yeah, Kara, thanks so much. Uh, I was holding up the wrong book. Uh, you, you open with a quote uh, from a French philosopher. It yeah. really encapsulates your role as a journalist covering Silicon Valley. Quote, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. Right. When you invent the plane, you also invent the plane crash. Uh, people were so eager and excited about what the tech world was bringing us. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't think about the consequences, which, right. which you talk about. Yeah, I talk about the, a, a culture that doesn't care about consequences. And it's not sort of like, I don't care what happens. It's they don't think about the consequences. And that's really what I was focused on, is that there's un lack of accountability, immense wealth, and not caring about consequences or paying for the damage you've done. Tech is not paid the way other industries have paid when there's mistakes that get made inevitably. There's this uh, infamous quote of Zuckerberg mm -hmm. uh, from early on when he's founding Facebook at Harvard and, he's, uh, and somebody's asking him about how he's doing it uh, and like how he's getting all this information. And, he's, and he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like, <clears throat> they're, you know, they're giving it to me for willingly the effing idiots. Yes, that's right. Suckers. He called the, them, you know. The effing did. suckers. Yes. Is that still the attitude of Zuckerberg and others? You know, every, I think every tech company or any company, the DNA is at the beginning, right? If the DNA of the founders are in it. I, I think he's changed and he's evolved as, as everybody has. But I do think for, most, for the most part, Facebook, over the course of the years it's been in business, which is a lot now, it's pretty much a rapacious information thief in that regard. You yeah. know, I think that I would say that about a lot of internet companies. They take our data, they pull it in, then they gobble it and then serve it back to us and charge us and ask us to say you're welcome. I remember um, talking to you when Elon Musk was buying Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was trying to be optimistic yes, about me too. it. Me too. You know me, I'm a cockeyed optimist. You are, you're cockeyed. That's how I look at you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you were, and you were just you were just uh, throwing cold water on it the whole time. Yeah, this is not going to go well, and saying not so nice things about him. Mm -hmm. um, you used to have a friendly relationship. I did, I did. But he changed. What happened? I I don't know. He started to you know the stuff he started um, tweeting or supporting in tweets were problematic. Whether it was anti-Semitic stuff, it was anti-trans. He did something around Paul Pelosi's attack that was disturbing. Crazy. Where he we treated a ridiculous conspiracy theory that was. It was cruel, what it was. And so I don't know what happened to him. I'm not his mama. I'm not his doctor. I don't know. I mean, there's been stories written. I think COVID had an impact on him. We for sure had a big beef over that earlier, yeah. where he said there'd be no problem and explained to me he read all the studies and I didn't understand. And I was like, okay, doctor, good to know. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, who knows? The journal's written about some of his drug use, obviously, and the, and the, boards, the board that doesn't stop him from doing whatever he feels like. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. On Zuckerberg, you write, no, Zuckerberg wasn't an asshole. He was worse. He was one of the most carelessly dangerous men in the history of technology who didn't even know it. Now, recently there was this hearing on Capitol Hill um, uh, having to do with protecting kids uh, right. online. And he stood up. People characterized it in, as an apology. It, it, it was wasn't not, actually an apology. He didn't actually say he was sorry. Right. He did, um, he did express sorrow about the, the existence of pain. Yes. Um, but, but a lot of these kids 
had been driven to suicide based on what they saw on Instagram, mm -hmm. or maybe they died of a fentanyl overdose based on something they purchased on Instagram, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Do you think he actually feels any sadness, sorrow, um, any guilt for uh, over any of this? Here's what I said. They're famous for doing the non-apology apologies at Facebook. I know? was actually mad that people called it an apology. He it never wasn't. said I'm it sorry. It wasn't. He turned to them, and I got to tell you, I know him pretty well or have known him in the past years. I could see it in his eyes. He was sort of like the pictures of the kids. The parents held up. So I could he's a human. Like he, is he? He, he, yes, he is. Yes, he is indeed. But you could see him go like he could see him taken aback. But then what he said was, I'm sorry for what's happened to you. Yeah, that was not. I'm sorry. I'm for sorry what that I've it done. rained today. Yes, yes. I'm so, not. I'm sorry for what I've had any part in this. That would have been the least thing you should have said. I you know, it's very much like them. They're like that. They don't think it's their fault. And I'm not saying all of it's their fault, but you know, January, uh, January 6th, they were an integral part of the radicalization. I had written about it years before saying yeah. this is what's going to happen. And they, they, they're like, well, how can you say that? I'm like, I'm, I'm an intelligent person who can piece together a little puzzle. <laughs> right, I have eyes and ears. And, and you're smarter than me, as you are often want to tell me. And I think one of the things that I, I talk about here is I really love tech. It has the potential to do great things, just like Paul Virilio, that's a Paul Virilio quote, said. It can be a ship but we have an awful lot of shipwrecks. Let's get a lighthouse, for goodness sake. Like, yeah, and, and uh, it's just such a wonderful book. Burn book, you. a tech love story. Congratulations, thank you. continued success. Thank you. Uh, and I can't wait to have you back on the show. You cockeyed optimist. Uh, you know me. <laughs> Always seeing the best in people. Kara Swisher, thanks so much. Breaking news on Capitol Hill. Hunter Biden appears to have just wrapped up a full day of testimony, leaving without taking questions from reporters. House Republicans are trying to link his father, President Biden, Two hunters' rather shady business dealings. What we're learning about the closed-door testimony next. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the uproar in Alabama, the protests today at the state capitol building demanding new laws on the books after that controversial ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court classifying frozen embryos as children. Plus, a must-see special report, the disturbing discovery after CNN spent weeks combing through video of damage in Gaza, comparing that with satellite imagery and to accounts of those who survived strikes in the war-ravaged region. And leading this hour, the moment House Republicans have been trying to score for months in their impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden, the president. Today's star witness, the president's son, Hunter Biden finally giving closed-door testimony as Republicans try to connect Hunter's sketchy business dealings to his father. With us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Robert Garcia. He's a member of the House Oversight Committee. He was in the room for Hunter Biden's testimony today. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So Hunter Biden, in his opening statement today, we're told, said, quote, I did not involve my father in my business, unquote. Now, we know he has talked to his dad on speakerphone while meeting with business partners. His dad might have dropped down and me dropped by a, a meeting or two or a dinner or two. Beyond that, which we've known, did Republicans, have Republicans presented any evidence today that might go beyond that? 
I mean, not a shred of evidence. There has been zero evidence presented uh, by anyone that links, of course, the president to any of Hunter Biden's business dealings. Uh, what we learned today essentially was that Hunter loves his father a lot. He admits to his own wrongdoings in the past. He is obviously uh, recovering from addiction himself, and he laid out all the information that was asked of him. Uh, I was there for three plus hours, and question after question, zero evidence was produced that links the president to anything. As far as we're concerned, this impeachment sham is over. There is nothing else to do. James Comer has presented witnesses that end up being spies, Russian intelligence, conspiracy theorists, and Hunter Biden had nothing else to add today. So we're trying to move on, to be quite honest. All right, Congressman Robert Garcia, thank you so much. I have to leave it there because we have some major breaking news. This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news just into CNN. The U.S. Supreme Court has weighed in on one of the cases about former President Donald Trump. So let's go straight to CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, what is the news from the U.S. Supreme Court? What did they decide on the immunity case? This is a... This is a massive development, Jake. The Supreme Court has agreed to take up the issue of whether former President Trump has immunity from the federal election subversion case that he is facing. Now, a unanimous appeals court several weeks ago issued a scathing opinion, a unanimous opinion saying that he did not have immunity that would shield him from the federal election subversion case brought by special counsel Jack Smith. So he asked the Supreme Court to pause that lower court decision in the possibility, with the possibility that they would take up this issue. And now we have learned that the Supreme Court will take up this issue. This means that they will hear, they will hear arguments. Now, it was just a few weeks ago, of course, that the Supreme Court took up another appeal from former President Trump, that one having to do with whether he could appear on state ballots, whether states had the authority to remove him from their ballots. Now, that, that argument, Jake, of course, you remember, it went pretty well for former President Trump. He is expected to prevail. But on this question, of whether former President Trump has immunity that would shield him from the January 6th case bought by the special counsel. Many legal experts and even sources I've spoken with in and around former President Trump's legal team did not expect, do not expect that he would prevail on the merits of this. But now the Supreme Court has agreed to take up this case. Now, the immediate impact before we even know what they decide is that this will likely further delay that trial. And we know the Trump strategy has been to try to delay both federal cases until after the 2024 election, because if Trump is reelected, he could likely make both of those go away. So this is a very significant development, somewhat unexpected, that the Supreme Court has decided to take up Trump's immunity appeal. All right. Fascinating stuff, Paula Reed. Thank you so much. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupik uh, joins us now. Joan, uh, explain the significance of the move, because I think I've heard some court watchers say they, they thought that it was possible that the court was just going to defer to the appeals court ruling that Trump is not immune, but that's not what they're doing. They're going to weigh in. Explain. Absolutely not, um, Jake. And I think the reason some people were suspecting that, some people thought that in the beginning, but I, I always thought there would be a 50-50 chance. But as the days wore on, we thought, why haven't they, if they're going to hear it, why don't they tell us they want to hear it and begin the process? And as they delayed for these last two weeks, it seemed like, well, maybe they're going to summarily affirm what the D.C. Circuit had done, a very sound opinion rejecting the immunity claim, or maybe they were going to deny it and that some of the justices were writing dissents from that denial. 
But what they've done is actually not too surprising. It's just the timing of it that's surprising. I, I thought that these justices might think that they need to have the last word on a question of such consequence of the power of, uh, in this case, a former president rather than a president. But what they've done now, Jake, just to cut through everything th uh, that's procedural here, is they have effectively ensured that we will not have a verdict on President Trump's election subversion allegations before summer, because they're not even going to hear this case until the week of April 22nd. And this is a complicated issue. It will probably take them a couple of weeks to get the opinion out. I mean, at best, likely it would come, you know, by the end of June when they typically recess for the session. But then we're already in summer. We're just we're right upon the Republican con uh, convention time. And I, I just do not see now any kind of chance of a trial as had originally been scheduled for first week in March, Jake. What I think could have happened, just to try to explain this timing, is possibly there had been an effort behind the scenes to try to do something that would have left in place the D.C. Circuit opinion and to see if the chief might have tried, Chief Justice John Roberts might have tried to get uh, some sort of majority around that. But the fact that they delayed even this order, this order that basically just says we're going to take it up, that they delayed it for two weeks, uh, suggests that they certainly did not embrace the urgency that special counsel Jack Smith tried to impose upon them way back in December when Jack Smith went to the Supreme Court and said, Justices, please take up this case now so that we can get a clear answer. This is yours to answer. And then, you know, once the D.C. Circuit, once the Supreme Court said, no, we're not coming in and the D.C. Circuit ruled, you know, that was another several weeks. So uh, the, President Trump's former President Trump's effort to run the clock has a partner in the Supreme Court at this point, even though. Jake, probably in the end, the justices will agree with the D.C. Circuit and say and reject President, former President Donald Trump's claim of absolute immunity. But what good will that do for any kind of trial uh, before we're really into the heat of this next presidential election? So just just to recap, Joan, um, the U.S. Supreme Court is not going to just like defer to the appeals no. court. Uh, no. They are going to hear the argument about exactly. whether or not Donald Trump has immunity, can say that what he did as president is uh, he's immune from prosecution because he was president at the time. Do we have any sort of timeline? So the court's going to yes. take up the case. When are there going to be arguments? Right. So they've set a time schedule for briefs to come in, written filings from the two side from uh, special counsel Jack Smith, who is representing the United States government here, trying to bring this case against Donald Trump for what happened at the end of the 2020 election cycle before the 2024 election cycle. So there'll be filings from Jack Smith. There'll be filings from former President Donald Trump. I'm sure we'll have a you know, cast of amicus uh, briefs coming in trying to argue on both sides. And then the week of April 22nd, uh, which is toward the end of their current uh, oral argument sitting for this uh, annual session, they will actually hold our oral arguments. Uh, all of our viewers will be able to hear those oral arguments when they're held. But I'm telling you, Jake, you know, it's going to take several weeks after that to get a ruling, just because the nature of this case, now that they've decided themselves to take it up. Okay, so the, the April 22nd is the week of oral arguments. Correct. And until then, there will be all sorts of arguments that they submit, right. amicus brief, et cetera. Um, when do you think there will be any sort of decision potentially from the U.S. Supreme Court uh, 
after April 22nd? Uh, you know, if I if I were betting just within minutes of having received this order, I would say the last week in June. I'd say the last week in June. I mean, it could come sooner. It could come sooner only because, you know, like it would be great if it did come sooner because so many uh, folks on both sides would like an answer to this. But the fact that they have delayed even taking up the case from the moment when they could have, you know, they were asked to take it up back in December. They were asked to take it up with some sort of urgency even earlier this month, and they didn't. They waited a couple of weeks to even say they were going to come in. And so, I, as I say, I don't think they feel the sense of urgency that the Department of Justice and Jack Smith have uh, uh, articulated here. So I'm thinking end of June only, Jake, because that's when their session typically ends for this, uh, you know, when the, most of their cases are resolved by the end of June. But then, you know, look where we are, end of June. And if let's just go back to the trial judge who had wanted to, uh, to actually hold a trial. She would have to engage in, you know, jury selection and then get that started. And, you know, that process takes several weeks. And we're, we're right into the thick of uh, the presidential election. So who knows what will happen at that, po that point. But I think the bottom line here is that the justice's action today really ensures that we will not have a verdict on whether uh, former President Donald Trump is guilty or, or even a judge not guilty of the election subversion claim set of, and there are four counts of uh, election subversion. You know, there's conspiracy and obstruction, everything that kind of culminated with the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. We will not have an answer to that uh, anytime soon. That's what this ensures, Jake. And, and just to reiterate, so nine justices are going to hear this. Um, if Chief Justice Roberts, and I don't, maybe you know, uh, but do we have any idea the, the dynamics behind the scenes here as to who, because I can't imagine that the three Democratic appointed justices, uh, Sotomayor uh, and, and Kagan and Jackson, I can't imagine that they would agree with this. How many people need to hold the position of, no, let's just delay, 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 for that to happen. Okay, under normal circumstances, it takes just four justices to grant a case, but it also takes five to kind of adhere to any motion. And there was a motion, of course, to you know block the effect of the uh, lower court judgment here. Uh, and a lower court judgment that I just want to stress again was unanimous by a panel of the D.C. Circuit that included you know a, a, an appointee of. Uh, the late President George H.W. Bush and two appointees of uh, President Biden. It was a, a very robust decision against the former president because the former president was really, really pushing an extreme argument about absolute immunity once he left, left office. But so you're right. There were probably justices on the left and maybe in the middle of the court who might not have thought that uh, that they needed to weigh in on this. But uh, but, you know, at least five thought that this was the way to go uh, to stop all the proceedings and wait for the justices to hear it. And again, I think there was a good argument that the justices should have the final word in this. It's just that they were given that opportunity several months ago to have the final word in it, but they've waited to this point and the week of April 22nd to even hear the arguments on that. All right, Joan Biskupic, our Supreme Court expert, thank you so much. Sure. Let's bring in CNN's Evan Pettis, who covers the Justice Department for us. Evan. Walk us through what this means for the trial. Special Counsel Jack Smith wants to try former President Trump 
for trying to steal the election. Yeah. Uh, now we won't know, and probably according to Joan, um, prob- maybe not even until the end of June, whether or not he can claim immunity. What does that mean uh, for the scheduling of this trial, assuming that they don't find that he can claim immunity for everything? Right. Well, Jake, what this means is that uh, when, whenever the Supreme Court comes back and, and renders a, a, a ruling on this, it means then that let's say, let's say they do decide that Donald Trump does not have immunity, as the appeals court had ruled, uh, then this goes back to Tanya Chutkin, the judge who is overseeing this case, and she's made very clear that she wants to move as quickly as possible. But still, Jake, that means you're looking at probably another eight weeks before, seven or eight weeks before you can get to trial. It pushes the calendar. It pushes pushes us deep into uh, into August and 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 the, the possibility, of course, for the Justice Department that you're going to be putting the the, 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 the the former president of the United States, the leading candidate, the, the presumptive uh, Republican nominee on trial uh, during the period where traditionally the Justice Department tries to make sure that there is nothing being done to 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 interfere with the election to appear to be interfering with the election of course that only uh, Jake that only has to do with things that are initiated by the Justice Department this case was initiated last year uh, and of course Donald Trump's appeals and his delay tactics have brought us to this point so really uh, it, it is uh, not of their own doing that that we're going to be smack in the middle of this but but it really does put the Justice Department in a, in a tough place. And, the, and you can bet Donald Trump is going to keep making that point, Jake, in the next few months, which is that the Justice Department is trying to put him on trial in the middle of his campaign. And then, of course, we're talking about after he has uh, uh, presumptively will have become the nominee. Um, just to go back to what Joan was pointing out, uh, Jake, we're also looking at another, another part of the very crowded calendar for Donald Trump. Um, these briefs are due... The deadlines that the Supreme Court has has set is March 19th for some of these uh, uh, filings, initial filings, and the final filings have to be brought in by April 15th. Of course, that's in the middle of Donald Trump's other criminal trial, the one that's supposed to start uh, at the end of March in New York, right, in Manhattan, where the uh, where where that case is supposed to get going on the on the hush money allegations, and so Donald Trump is going to be dealing with that case. Presum- presumably, that case will not be done by the time the Supreme Court will have these oral arguments uh, in the week. What they say here is in the April, a week of April 22nd. A very crowded calendar for the leading Republican nominee for uh, for uh, for president. And, of course, for the justice system, which is trying to hold him accountable for these alleged crimes that they say he committed. So uh, it's not clear how, uh, how this is going to turn out, but you can see how much more crowded the Supreme Court has made that calendar over the next uh, few months, Jake. All right, uh, Evan, uh, help me here, because I want to help our viewers at home yeah. uh, understand, because it's difficult to keep all these... Trump legal problems straight. Uh, we should be giving out like baseball cards or yeah. something for them. All right. So today we're right now we're talking about uh, the Donald Trump Donald Trump being prosecuted by the federal government by right. the Jack Smith right. uh, for his role in the attack on the Capitol. Right. And he's claimed immunity, and the U.S. Supreme Court says we're going to hear the case about whether or not he has immunity. Oral arguments will be in April. Uh, Joan, our Supreme Court expert, says, Joan Biskupic says, that means there probably won't be a decision until the end of June. You're saying that jury selection and everything 
will take two months after that. Am I right? Right. It, well, the, the way the calendar had set up that the, the, the judge, China, Tanya Chutkin had set up the the the, uh, the calendar. Jake uh, was to give the teams, the two sides, about seven to eight weeks okay. uh, of, of pre-trial preparation, and so we would assume that whenever this this uh, this comes down, and if Donald Trump loses, right, that that calendar restarts, and that's we're talking about another seven or eight weeks. So, so yeah, so just so I mean, obviously, if the Supreme Court says Donald Trump has immunity, then it's then over. that's the, that's the end of that case, right. Um, but if they say no, he doesn't, that's end of June, theoretically. That means end of July, end of August. End of August, the trial could start. But then there is this rule, in the, I don't know if it's an official rule or a tradition, but that the U.S. Uh, Justice Department is not supposed to be doing prosecutions that close to an election. Although I, I think it's a, what is it, like 100 days or something? It's right. It, it's gen- generally, the, the, count, the, the, uh, the, the, the clock starts running somewhere. It, people interpret it in different ways, Jake. Labor uh, Day-ish. But, yeah, Labor Day-ish. And yeah. again, the, you know, I asked uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland just that, that very question just a few weeks ago when we were in Texas uh, and Uvalde. And I asked him that question, and he pointed out that the Justice Department initiated this prosecution. Jack Smith brought this case last year. And the only reason why we're here is because Donald Trump has succeeded right. in his efforts to delay things. Right. And so, so, you know, it, everything is turning it, up roses for the former president. Right. Really. No, and it's obviously going to be quite disingenuous when he says delay, 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 delay. Right. Oh, my God, it's Labor Day-ish. We can't have a trial now when right. he's the one, he's the reason. That, but that doesn't matter. That's still a, a, a legal technique, and his lawyers are doing it right. effectively. Okay, so that's, tr- that's one trial. That's one that's trial. One trial. The, uh, the one in Atlanta, we've been covering separately, and I don't want to get into that. That has to do with uh, yeah. Bonnie Willis and uh, TMI. We don't have a trial date yet yeah. uh, on that one, Jake. Uh, but, you know, she has been trying to push for yeah. some kind of trial sometime this, le- this year. Okay. Then there is the one that's going to take place in New York with the uh, uh, District Attorney Alvin Bragg. That's about hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and right. whether Donald Trump uh, was not honest in the tax code. It's a lot of legal experts consider this the weakest of right. all of them. This is uh, okay. Then there is that also one, that yeah. one. That one, Jake, starts in the next month. It starts at the at the end of March, and so that's when uh, you know that's the first really the first criminal trial. Uh, that is supposed to get started uh, with Donald Trump as a defendant. And that one would have a, a financial penalty, if anything. That's not, that's not uh, right. nobody's alleging, uh, asserting the jail time. Okay. Then there is this other trial that Jack Smith is bringing forward, and this, this other case, and that involves him for activities after his presidency. Right. This is the, 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 the cla- classified documents right. case. Now, for that one, that's in Florida, because that's where this mishandling allegedly took place. And Trump has a Trump appointee judge who has been uh, making rulings that the Trump lawyers have liked. What is the status of that one? Well, that one is right now scheduled to go to start in May, but no one believes that that's going to happen. I think, as a matter of fact, uh, on Friday, when we have a, a very important uh, court hearing in Fort Pierce with Judge Eileen Cannon, I think we might get a little bit of clarity on that because uh, it's clear the Trump team wants that delayed, but they only want it delayed a certain amount of time. Uh, Caitlin Polans reported uh, uh, just a few days ago that the strategy there is to move the date just a little bit in order 
order to make it difficult for the DC case, that, uh, the case that is overseen by Judge Chutkin, for that to even get on the calendar. And so the, the idea, Jake, is that uh, Friday, on Friday we'll see how amenable this judge is uh, to moving the, the calendar date for that trial, the classified documents case, for that to, to be moved perhaps a, a few weeks or a couple of months. Uh, and again, right now that is supposed to start in May, but just based on the, the classified documents and, and the, the complexities of those documents and all the issues that are presented there, it's clear that that case will not start in May. All right. Very, very complicated stuff, but today we're focused It's more complicated the... than your kid's uh, school calendar, Jake. <laughs> I mean... That's, well, I don't know about that, but, but, it, <laughs> but it is very complicated, and it yeah. does also illustrate uh, that, that when uh, people talk about how there's two-tier system of justice in this country, they're not wrong. Now, it's not political per se. It's if you are wealthy enough to be right. able to afford lawyers who can pull off these gymnastics yes. and delay techniques and all the things that Trump's lawyers, who are, in this, in this case, very able, uh, this is what they are able to do as opposed to uh, you know, uh, Ma and Pa Smith watching at home. Right. Uh, or just... you and me, right? And here's the issue, Jake. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, we've, uh, in this country, we've always, for, certainly for, for a couple of centuries, claimed that, uh, that no one is above the law. And I got to tell you, like right now, you have to ask that question, right? Because he, uh, the fact that he is a former president gets him a lot of deference. It is, get, it is getting him a lot of deference within our system. And people would argue that it should, right? Because you are a former president, you should get at least uh, to, to be heard on this very important constitutional question. But what it does mean for practical reasons is that you can delay things in a way that anybody else would not be able to. Yeah. All right. Fascinating stuff. Evan Pettis, thanks so much. Sure. We'll come back to you when you got more to report. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins now. She's the anchor of what's the name of the show? Did you forget? No, I want you, I want you to say <laughs> it on TV with your big smiling face. The Source. The Source at 9 p.m. Eastern. Caitlin, uh, the Trump team, how are they reacting to this news? they got to be pretty psyched, I would think. Well, I mean, speaking of the name of the show, I mean, we're texting them right now and talking to them. Uh, they were just as on edge waiting to see what was going to happen here. Obviously, worst case scenario for them would have been if the Supreme Court denied this and then that case would have been able to, to If they proceed. said, yeah, no, the U.S. Supreme, the appeals court got it right. Yeah, it would have been a disaster. And after that unanimous ruling came out from the appeals court, they were not sure what the Supreme Court was going to decide here because it was well argued, it was unanimous, and it kind of put the Trump team on their back foot in the sense of what was going to happen here. You can't really predict, but but they feel that this is at least a win for now. Sure. That's what we're hearing from them. Definitely. Uh, of course, it remains to be seen what this looks like with the expedited basis, but this is exactly to their game plan, to what Evan was saying there from Caitlin Polance. What we have been hearing is that what they would like to do, obviously, delay, delay, delay has been their entire legal strategy, but is to get that documents case in Florida pushed just enough to where if they lose on the merits here, and they fully expect that they will lose on the right. merits in the sense of this, they make no bones about that, but it doesn't matter because if they lose on the merits, but win, when it comes to the timing and delaying this, that's a win in their books. Sure. And, and uh, I mean, I don't mean to be um, a cynic, but the fact that they are the ones delaying and delaying and delaying and delaying, pushing this case to the point that if the Supreme Court ultimately rules the way we think they will, which is, no, you don't have immunity for any, anything you do as president, and then the case goes forward on the schedule that Joan and Evan have posited, which is oral arguments in April, 
final decision uh, ruling in June, and then two months or so uh, before the trial starts, even though the reason it would start so late is because of Trump's legal maneuvering, we do expect, right, that they will then say, hey, this is really late. You can't have a, you can't have a trial now. We're in the middle of the presidential campaign. Yeah, that's exactly what right. they plan to argue. And they are not cynical when they make very clear that that is what their strategy is here and what they're going to try to do. Uh, I think it also just speaks to the entire strategy here of what they've looked to do, how they've tried to rely on the Supreme Court with this. And I, it is notable, though, that they think that they'll lose on the merits of this argument. I mean, What's well, a ridiculous I mean, argument? You can't, like, you can't, I mean, literally they were saying that a president could, and this is, I did not make this up, this was actually in the trial, that a president could order the assassination of a political opponent using SEAL Team 6, and he would not face any legal repercussions unless he were impeached and convicted first, which is preposterous. And it's also a question that we've never seen the Supreme Court answer. What is the president's level of immunity? And this brief order seems to say that they'll get into the extent to which they believe that goes to and what that looks like. And so we'll ultimately see what they decide here on the merits. So you heard uh, Joan Biskubic uh, suggest that she would guess that after April or, or oral arguments and the attitude of the U.S. Supreme Court, which is not to take this case up with any urgency, um, that she anticipates a ruling will probably come down end of June, which is when the court usually issues its rulings uh, and then breaks for the summer. And that's only a few weeks away from the Republican National Convention in July. Yeah. And Judge Chutkin has said she they've when this trial was still moving on case, it was about two months of discovery. So not only that, there could be other delays as well. I mean, they've sought to, to take other measures here. By that time, obviously, Donald Trump now, we're approaching Super Tuesday and is all but the nominee. Obviously, Nikki Haley is still in this race, but we're seeing, you know, how that's actually playing out for her. I don't think it's an understatement to, or an overstatement to say that, that what the Supreme Court has decided here today with this decision, just to hear this, it could be a seminal moment in this election of what this actually looks like. That Jack Smith's case could not go to trial before the election, or it could be so close to it that the full case would not actually be able to be heard and tried by the time voters are casting their ballots in November. And it could be ultimately a major deciding point in what happens come November. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it just happened, so we don't have any historical perspective on it, but it is certainly possible that in a year, you and I will be looking back at this exact conversation and yeah. saying, that was the day that everything changed. Yeah, and I think that's what's important because there are so many legal cases and obviously we stay on top of them, we're reporting them out, we talk about them at length. Regular people aren't. And I think if you're looking at this and you're wondering, you know, what does this moment mean? It's a huge moment for what Trump's legal troubles could actually look like, whether they fuel him into the White House yet again or whether or not they play a major obstacle in that. And obviously Jack Smith has not said the word election in his filings, but they've made clear they're trying to move with urgency. He asked the Supreme Court to move with urgency here. It still went to this appeals court first who flatly rejected Trump's argument. But the idea that now the Supreme Court is going to hear this, but it could in the end still hurt him by not letting his case actually go to trial is a remarkable moment. And then of course, if he wins, he'll have it dismissed because he will be the president. Or he could lose. I mean, we don't know, but that is obviously what they are. are no, no, I mean, if he here. wins the presidency. Right. I'm and, they, and, they haven't the and they haven't tried him. Yeah. And then, you know, if they delay it, if the if the ultimately they decide the not to go forward gone. with the case, then the case is gone, both that and the classified documents. And people at home were talking about the concept earlier with Evan about like no man is above the law, no person is above the law. That's supposed to be the ethos of the United States. Those watching this show earlier saw Senator an old clip of Mitch McConnell uh, from January 2021 talking about how Donald Trump was culpable. He was responsible 
for what happened on January 6th, but he was not going to vote to impeach him, not to convict him. It would be left up to the courts. Now we see the courts and the system to observers out there might seem a little gamed. It might seem a little like, oh, so there's no accountability for some people. But also how notable that, and that's a great point, how notable this is coming the day that Senator Mitch McConnell announced he's stepping down from Republican leadership. Because the reason three of those justices are on the Supreme Court that Trump picked were because of Mitch McConnell and the way he helped shepherd them and also, you know, stopped the attorney general now from becoming a Supreme Court justice potentially. I mean, it's just a remarkable uh, holistic moment when you step back and look at how all of the different puzzle pieces have shaped what is happening right now. Right. And just for folks out there uh, to remember, the seat uh, that Donald Trump first filled was vacated when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died during the Barack Obama presidency. And Mitch McConnell, then the Republican leader of the Senate, said, we're not going to have hearings. We're not going to fill that seat. And the Supreme Court did not have nine justices for a long period of time. Uh, he said he was just going to wait for the next president to be elected. This was uh, a new rule that he invented. And then at the end of the Trump presidency, when RBG died, yeah. yeah um, the, at the end of the Trump presidency, yeah, though, yeah. he then went back and changed the rules to fill it with uh, Amy Coney Barrett. So two of those justices um, are under these circumstances, two of the three Trump justices. Yeah, it's remarkable to look at that picture and also to see Mitch McConnell and Trump's relationship and how it went from, from that symbiosis of putting a Supreme Court justice there and having the hearings and to now when he's stepping down from GOP leadership, he's completely out of touch with the Trump wing, which is yeah. obviously the majority wing of his party now. Uh, RBG died during Trump. I'm sorry. Um, uh, yeah, she was the one who Amy Coney Barrett replaced. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. But what was then, then what was the one? It was the Merrick Garlandson. Scalia died. Scalia I'm sorry. Died. I'm confusing my justices who died. At the end of Obama, uh, Scalia died and they wanted to fill it. Anyway. With people, Merrick Garland. With Merrick Garland. And he didn't get it. My, own, my point being, I apologize. I'm doing this all live here. My point being that Mitch McConnell really helped Donald Trump fill at least one, if not two of those seats under circumstances the Democrats really hated. Democrats really hated. He also helped with Kavanaugh, too, though, when his his nomination was on the brink. I mean, they helped hold it and make sure that, that he did not withdraw his nomination. And he, you know, obviously, in the moments we were having special coverage. Anyway, it's just a remarkable to look at the big picture what, of the, the, Mitch McConnell no, the day of that he's leaving. Yeah, no, I take the point. My point is that instead of disparaging Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump should be sending him a muffin basket. And I don't it, even think he's commented on the fact that he's stepping down from Republican no, but, leadership. But, I mean, the Supreme Court, which has been shaped by Mitch McConnell, just did Donald Trump a huge favor yep. that I don't know they would have done had Merrick Garland been on that court, as Democrats think he should have been. In any case, Caitlin Collins of The Source, 9 p.m. Eastern. Always great to see you. The breaking news, the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear arguments over Donald Trump's claim of presidential immunity the week of April 22nd. That's about seven weeks. This is in the federal election subversion case brought on by special counsel Jack Smith. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. And we're back with our breaking news. The U.S. Supreme Court has decided they will hear arguments on Donald Trump's claim of immunity. He claims he cannot be prosecuted in the 2020 election subversion case because everything he did during that period uh, he was president for, therefore he is immune from prosecution. Uh, let's bring back CNN's uh, Paula Reed. Uh, Paula, do we have a response now from the special counsel, Jack Smith, who wanted this trial expedited, wanted the U.S. Supreme Court to hear it early, and now 
is finding uh, that President Trump, former President Trump's delay, delay, delay strategy is working. We do not have an official response yet, Jake, and that could be because they're furious and need to collect their thoughts and then put something on paper. Now, this is the second time the Supreme Court has rejected Jack Smith's request for the Supreme Court to just step in and decide this question of immunity once and for all so that he could move forward with this prosecution. He asked them months ago to weigh in on this issue, not to wait for this to go through the appeals process so that he could bring this case to trial swiftly, saying that it was in the public interest for this case to be tried and decided soon. The Supreme Court declined to do that. Of course, the case went to the appeals court where they rendered a unanimous, scathing decision, rejecting Trump's argument that he had absolute presidential immunity. Then, after the Supreme Court received a request to pause that decision, they took two weeks before releasing the fact that they are going to hear arguments in late April, which means we probably won't get a decision until late June, and we would need at least two months before that trial starts. So, Jake, this makes it unlikely, though not impossible, that Jack Smith will be able to bring that case. And while this has been a bad day, it could be a bad week for Jack Smith because on Friday, I'll be down in Florida, where judge overseeing the other federal prosecution, the Mar-a-Lago Classified Documents case, which is penciled in for late May. She is expected to weigh in on scheduling, and it is widely expected that that case will also be delayed. Again, unclear if he'll be able to bring either one of these cases before the election. All right, Paula, thanks so much. Let's turn now to former Trump attorney Tim Parlatori. Uh, Tim, good to see you as always. What is your reaction to the U.S. Supreme Court announcing that they will hear the Trump immunity case oral arguments the week of April 22nd? You know, it's interesting to me. I mean, it certainly tracks, uh, you know, what the Supreme Court will want to do for an issue like this. Uh, you know, there was a decision uh, back in the late 90s uh, where Ruth uh, Justice Ginsburg said, when it comes to issues of presidential immunity and, and privileges, that's something that should be decided by the Supreme Court and not by the uh, by the circuit. And so it does make sense that they are tracking that exact same reasoning to bring this case up there. Now, whether they'll actually change the ruling is a different, uh, different story. They very well may you know, go through it and then reach a very similar conclusion to the circuit. So assuming that this, uh, the, the schedule, the timeline looks like this, Arguments April 22nd, decision end of June, seven to eight weeks uh, for the court case to begin, assuming that the U.S. Supreme Court decides that Donald Trump does not have immunity, which I think a lot of people expect will be their ultimate decision. Um, So that puts it end of August for that trial to begin. Uh, Do you think that the Trump team will will successfully argue, hey, you can't try us. It's Labor Day. We got a presidential race going on here. Or do you think that the Justice Department is going to ultimately rule, you're the one that's been delaying it for a year. We wanted to do this in 2023. Well, remember, the right to a speedy trial is something that is for the defendant, not the government. And so I do think that this does push it out to the stage. And you know, the timeline that you just laid out, that's if everything goes according to plan. That's if there's no other delays. And so... I think that it could go out a little bit further than that. And ultimately, the closer you get to the election itself, the more it does tend to look like and and support the notion that it's an election interference uh, tactic. So I do, I personally believe that this decision takes the January 6th uh, trial off the board as far as uh, doing it before the election. Really? You think that that's it? Like it's not going to happen before the election? The only way it will go forward is, let's be honest, 
if if uh, Donald Trump uh, loses the election and then and then the court case continues in your view? I think so. I mean, you got to remember, if you look at the time uh, when a normal federal criminal case would come to trial, especially one with a similar amount of discovery, the only reason that this case would ever be tried in under two years is because of the election. You know, a case of this magnitude would normally not have a trial until at least two years after the initial arrest. And so I think when you push things out, you know, to this extent through the Supreme Court decision, and it's also interesting, I, you know, looking at the order, the way that they kind of limited the question uh, for them to argue, I think that it could end up being something where they could, you know, issue a decision and remand it down potentially even for a pretrial evidentiary hearing to determine which parts of the case, you know, might, would fall under a potential immunity and which one wouldn't. And that would add how much time to the timeline here? Uh, that could add, you know, a few months. Um, a few months. What about just the on its face disingenuousness about the idea like that the Trump strategy, and I'm not saying that any lawyer wouldn't do it, nor that I wouldn't want them to do it for me were I in this circumstance, but it is on its face disingenuous to try to delay, 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 and then when the trial actually goes forward, to then say, you can't have the trial right now. This is horrible timing. I'm, you know, the presidential elections in three months. I mean, it could have taken place in 2023. It, it could have. Um, but like I said, a case, election and politics aside, a case of this magnitude never gets tried that quickly. I mean, the, the idea of them pushing to try it within a year of the indictment coming down is just completely unheard of. Uh, so it's it, that's a strategy. It only gets heard that quickly when the defense essentially waves motions. It wants to go forward very quickly, invokes the defendant's right to a speedy trial uh, because they know that they're going to go for a straight acquittal. So I, I don't really see that being something that you know really um, you know go, going to to do much here. They're going to push it out, and at the end of the day, they have so much other stuff on the calendar at that time that I just don't see it being something that, you know, that for this case to have any, you know, legitimacy, um, you know, will be able to be tried during that timeline. But how would that be delayed? I mean, who would make the decision to delay it? Because Attorney General Garland has said, we put in for the motion in 2023 to have this be speedier than it is. It's President Trump's uh, attorneys who are pushing this, this delay strategy. Um, who would be the final arbiter to say, we're not going to have this trial in August, September, uh, because of the presidential election? Well, it's if they solely go in there and say, we don't want to have it because of the election, then it could go forward. If they're smart, what they're going to do is say, yeah, we have the election, we have all these other scheduling things. Plus, the case has been on hold for all this time. We haven't been going through the discovery. We haven't been filing motions. There are still other things to be done. And election aside you know if you just say to the judge given the volume of discovery we cannot be ready to try this case on that time and you know the defendant has a right to be able to be prepared for trial yeah that's something that's going to be very difficult to say no to tim parlatori always good to have you on thank you sir appreciate your time thank you more of the big breaking news this major decision from the u.s supreme court taking up trump's immunity case we'll be right back 
back with our big breaking news. The U.S. Supreme Court has announced that they will hear arguments over Donald Trump's claim that he is immune from prosecution in the 2020 election subversion case against him because he was president at the time. Let's bring in Steve Vladek, a CNN legal analyst and professor at the University of Texas uh, Law School. Uh, Steve, um, what's your reaction uh, to the announcement? Yeah, you know, Jake, when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we had always thought that this was one of the possibilities that would come out of the Supreme Court, that they would take up the case on an accelerated basis. Um, what I think is striking about the order is that it took this long to get only this. And it really suggests that there was probably a real debate inside the court over the last two weeks about some effort to reach some kind of more definitive conclusion, perhaps a, you know, a summary decision affirming the D.C. Circuit, and that that effort fell apart. Um, and what that really suggests is that there are at least a couple of justices in the middle, whether it's a Justice Brett Kavanaugh or a Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who might be very, very unsympathetic to former President Trump's immunity claim on the merits, but who also wanted the court to give it due consideration and that that's why we're seeing the court take this step today. This is uh, obviously not the only case involving Trump that the U.S. Supreme Court is weighing. Uh, there's also the decision about whether or not to keep Trump off ballots because states have decided that Trump's ineligible for office because of the Fourth, um, 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists. Um, what's the latest on that? Why haven't they made uh, an announcement on that today as well? Yeah, I mean, what's striking about that ruling, Jake, is how fast the court moved to hold argument in that case. I mean, it really was about five weeks from when the court took that case up to when it heard argument versus in this case, in the immunity case, really closer to seven or eight weeks. Um, and yet, even though it's now been, gosh, three weeks tomorrow uh, since the oral argument, still no decision. Jake, what that suggests to me um, is that the court really doesn't feel like it's in a hurry. Um, you know, President Trump is going to be on the ballot on Tuesday in Colorado. I don't think the justices, as we talked about during the oral argument right after it, are inclined to change that status quo. And so it might be that this is now, you know, some version of the compromise that we've been talking about, where the court is looking at a way of handing down decisions in these two cases that end up giving Trump one win and one loss. I think, Jake, the problem is that this is going to feel to a lot of folks watching at home like the court is buying former President Trump another seven, eight weeks, gosh, maybe even three months when you factor in how long it will take the court to rule of delay in the January 6th prosecution, even in a context in which I still think it's likely that Trump is going to lose. And I think this gets to the broader problem, which is as these cases get backed up against the timing of the election year, every little delay on the court's part looks like it is nefarious, looks like it's substantive and bodes, at least in the short term, well for former President Trump. All right, Steve Laddick, good to see you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. The week of April 22nd, that's when the U.S. Supreme Court is now set to hear oral arguments in the federal election subversion case against Donald Trump. Uh, CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig has been patiently standing by. And just to be clear, uh, Ellie, what they're not going to be hearing arguments in the case itself. They're going to be hearing arguments about whether or not Donald Trump has immunity from prosecution. And then there would be the trial, presumably months after that. What's your reaction to this decision? 
Well, Jake, I think this is clearly a big win for Donald Trump and a major setback for Jack Smith. In terms of what I think is the big question on people's mind, is there any chance now that this case gets tried before the election? I think my answer is there is the slightest sliver of a chance, but no more than that. And here's why. If we do our calendar math here, let's say that we get a ruling in this case around June 1, which is what Joan Biskupic and other Supreme Court experts have said is a reasonable approximation. The trial judge can't then just say, okay, now we're going to start trial two weeks from now, June 15th, because at the moment this case was stayed or paused in the trial court, they were three months out. I think it's 88 days out from trial. And so that's all time that the parties need for discovery, for preparation, for motion. So let's say we get a ruling June 1st, the earliest they can realistically even try to start this trial would be mid to late August. And now you're looking at a trial, and again, with the general election happening, that will be happening August, September, October, even perhaps right up to the election day. That is a very fraught possibility, I think, for all parties. But how would it happen that it wouldn't go forward? Because let's, 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 right. let's assume the schedule that you just said, and, and uh, the trial can begin around Labor Day. Um, who is going to say, call it off? So there's going to be one main relevant party here, and that's the judge. Judge Chutkin, when she gets this case back, if Donald Trump loses the immunity argument, it will be up to her whether to set a trial date. Now, Donald Trump is going to argue for sure, you can't try me in September, October, November of an election year. That's unfair to me. That violates DOJ policy that you try not to influence elections. DOJ may agree with that, or DOJ may say, sorry, tough luck. Let's try this thing now. But that decision is going to come down to the district judge, Judge Chuck, and how close is she willing to go to the election itself? Does Trump have any chance, you think, to actually win this immunity argument? I don't think so, and I haven't heard from any serious observer that does think so, but it's important that people realize this is an argument that we don't know the answer to. I mean, the Supreme Court has recognized a form of civil immunity for certain federal officials, including the president, going back 40 or so years, so long as they're acting within the scope of their federal job. What we don't know is, A, is there any form of criminal immunity? The Supreme Court's ever, never actually ruled on that. And if so, was Donald Trump acting within the scope of his job? I don't think there's a good argument here that Trump was within the scope of his job, but this is an unknown question, an unknown issue. And I think that's exactly why the Supreme Court decided that they needed to take this. Remember, by the way, two months ago, Jack Smith said to the Supreme Court, only you can decide this case. You, the Supreme Court, and you alone have to resolve this. All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Much more reaction Thanks, to Jake. this big breaking news ahead in the next hour. Our coverage continues now in the Situation Room with one Wolf Blitzer. I'll see you soon. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.